And welcome into the studio with Michael Card. I'm Wayne Shepard. Michael, are you doing all right? You, you seem a little silly here well, today. Well, you know, we've had a long time. We've been sitting here for a long time, haven't we, Wayne? Yeah, this isn't the only program we've recorded today. No. So. It, as a matter of fact, it isn't. Yeah, I guess we're human after all, huh? Well, I think it's fun to be kind of silly when you're tired. <laughs> What's your what's you're your option? Fun, you're fun to be around. You're well, really we don't right. want to be cranky, right? True. Yeah. So which is my default. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here's what's going to happen on the program today. We're going to have uh, another lesson in lament. Mm-hmm. Look uh, at Job. Job mm-hmm. part three coming yes. up. If you missed parts one and two, yeah. they're in the archive. It's yeah. a wonderful thing about the podcast. They're all right there. Yep. All you do is go to the iTunes or Google Play list and select the programs you want to listen to. You don't to. have to wait for it to come on some program somewhere. Right. You can That's access it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, in a moment, we'll hear just a little clip about what's coming up in the second half of the yeah. program. But I have a listener comment I want to read. Okay. I want to thank our listeners for the feedback that we get. It, it encourages us. It does. We're not looking for praise all the time. You know, ideas well, and... No, we're looking, looking for, for praise, praise all the okay, time. Right. <laughs> you gave me that look like I am. Okay, <laughs> Speak this, for yourself. This comes from Greg, who says uh, to you, Michael, I have listened to your beautiful scripture-based music for 30 years. Wow. And uh, read and taught Bible study through a few of your books. The new one on Hesed is a wonderful continuation from the lost language of lament. Mm. It's a challenging concept for the finite to understand the infinite and perfect. Many years ago, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul helped me understand about it as fully as humanly possible in his book, The Holiness of God. Mm. I don't think I've ever read that book. I don't think I have either. Right. That's pretty good company, though. Don't you well, think? I think so. <laughs> and, and I think there's definitely a link between his Hesed and his holiness. All right. Well, let's get a little taste of what's coming up in the second half of the program. As Michael, you teach about lament in the book of Job. This is the final section on the book of Job. In the book of Job, who's right? I mean, other than God. Is Elihu right? Is Zophar right? Is Job right? No, they're all wrong. The book of Job is not a book about being right. It's a book about being faithful. Right? And what's the point of Job? He's faithful. He says wrong things about God. He doesn't understand things. He says God doesn't love him. He says God has hidden his face from him. He says, you know, God is all these bad things about God. So it's, but it's not about being right. He holds on. He doesn't let go. Okay? Faithfulness. And sometimes I think I, I was in a church that basically salvate, it was salvation through thinking the right thing. And I think Job's friends all go to that church. Salvation through correct theology. And I'm not saying we shouldn't guard sound doctrine. Don't get, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not playing free and easy with that. But what I want for the, what's left of my life, I want to understand what it means to be faithful. I want to know what faithful looks like, faithfulness looks like, okay? Oh, that's so well said. More on that coming up in the second half today of this program in the studio with Michael Card. Remember Lyle Dorsett being our guest years gone by? Yep. And at one point, I know he was working, he finished this book. He was working on a book on chaplains. Uh-huh. And he and I got into this long discussion after we recorded. My, my grandfather was a chaplain in World War I. And I ended up sending a, a picture of my grandfather. And we had this discussion and really, I think, started a, a good friendship. He, he's a remarkable, he's a remarkable scholar. Yeah, I always appreciated his biography of D.L. Moody. Yeah. Uh, that was, and he's written several biographies, yes. but that's one good one. Yeah. So we'll talk with him coming up in just a moment. I'm looking forward to, to that. To begin our program today, after you sing a song for FFB. Yeah. Explain this. Well, the FFB is Frederick Fernando Brown, who is my grandfather, who was the guy, who was the, the, uh, the chaplain in World War I. And he was uh, a remarkable person, my grandfather. I, I never knew him. Uh, he died when I was a year or two old. And uh, I've always regretted that because he was a pastor. He was a remarkable uh, person who was, um, he, he integrated his church in 1930. Mm. Um, and it was a Southern in Baptist South, church. Yeah, yeah he, was, he, he was just a courageous, remarkable man and very loving man. And this song is about, um, I, had, I had a dream about him at one point. I was 14, and I would sensed God's call to be a Bible teacher. And um, and I just so, I guess in my mind, I played it over so so much. I wanted him to know somehow. And I had this dream. And uh, uh, in the dream, he just, we didn't talk or anything. He just hugged me. That's all it was. And, and that's what the, the song came from, that, that, that dream. Oh, such a tender yeah. song for FFB. Just a simple preacher from the Carolina hills Born in just the perfect place and time 
A gentle, loving mountain man with warm and sparkling eyes, and a face that wrinkled from a constant smile. In you I learned the kind of faith that looks up to the mountains. In you I saw just what I'd like to be. Oh, Granddad, I wish you could be here to tell me what to do, 'cause I first saw the light of Christ through you. And it must have been a special love that filled your shepherd's heart, that made you care so deeply for your flock. 'Cause I hear tell on winter days you'd always give your coat away. Simply 'cause you thought they needed more. From you I learned the kind of faith that looks up to the mountains. In you I saw just what I'd like to be. Oh, Granddad, I wish you could be here to tell me what to do. 'Cause I first saw the light of Christ through you. Other well, I thank the Lord for that one special night when somewhere between the earth and sky we silently met eye to eye, and I got the hug I'd needed for so long. From you I learned the kind of faith that looks up to the mountains, and you I saw just what I'd like to be. Oh, Granddad, I wish you could be here. Tell me what to do, 'cause I first saw the light of Christ through you. Oh, Granddad, I wish you could be here to tell me what to do, 'cause I first saw the light of Christ through you. And that Granddad is the same man that you just showed me his photo. I did. He was a chaplain in World War One. Yeah, Fred Brown. Ah, what a heritage. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the voice of Dr. Lyle Dorset, who is with us today. It's been a long time since we've had this man on this program, Michael. Yeah, it's so great to have you back, Lyle. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Good to be yeah. with you guys. Yeah. Understand you're retired now. I have. I've passed the torch at my uh, church and, and the Divinity School where I've been mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. Well, this is Memorial Day time, and you wrote the book Serving God and Country. We want to talk to you about that. Okay. Michael? Well, this time of year, we're, we're I mean, we should, we should be honoring them 365 days a year, True. but we're honoring the men and women who, uh, who serve the country. I think it's a very Christ-like thing to risk your life so that other people can be free, people mm-hmm. that you don't even know. Particularly those who gave their lives, and that's what Memorial Day is all about, right? Yeah. But let's talk about the chaplaincy. Well, I, one of the things that uh, strikes me is Chaplain Major General William Arnold, who was a World War II chaplain and stayed in and became chief of chaplains, he said this. He said, battles are won by military power, but wars are won by spiritual power. Wow. wow. That's great, isn't it? Wow. And the chaplains are the ones who rally and focus that, that, uh, that power, huh? That's indeed so. Yeah. I, General Vandergrift, who led the Marines on Guadalcanal in their first major island invasion and then <clears throat> ended up being the commandant of the Marine Corps by the time of the end of the war, Vandergrift in January 1946 spoke in Washington, D.C., and he said this. He said, uh, he said, you know, the casualties that we experienced and suffered from Guadalcanal all the way through Okinawa. And he said, I can only speak for the Marine Corps. He said, I can't speak for other branches. But he said, I can tell you the enormously high casualties we experienced from 1942 through 45 on those islands could never have been sustained without two groups of men. He said, first of all, the corpsmen, the the Navy Mm, corpsmen, these were their medics. And he said, secondly, the chaplains. Hmm. He said, because war is so impersonal. But he said, the corpsmen and the chaplains let those combatants know that they were not alone and Hmm. they were important as a person. Wow. And he said, wherever the battle was raging, 
you'd find our corpsman and our chaplain right in the midst of it with these guys. Hmm. Well, just before we began recording, you were telling us a story of a man, I don't think he was a chaplain even, was he, who opened the scriptures before going into battle? Yes, yes. He was a man from Alabama, and he uh, he was from a small town in Alabama, and he said that uh, on December 7th, obviously they'd gone home from church and discovered we were at war. The next Sunday, he goes back to his church, and he said, perhaps you know that pastors cannot be drafted. Mm-hmm. He said, but I've spent all week in prayer, and the Lord will not allow me to hide behind my pulpit. So tomorrow I'm going to Birmingham and join the Marines, mm. which he did. And long story short, he was uh, loved by the men in the squad. He became a squad leader. He was a sergeant. And they said that every time that they were up on the front lines fighting, when they would fall back for just some rest and to get some more water and get rest before they go back to the front, he'd gather the guys around and pull out his pocket New Testament that he had inside his dungaree jacket and read verses of Scripture quoting Jesus and said, Men, I want you to know, as hellish as this is, as we go back to the front in a few minutes, we're not going alone. Jesus Christ will be with us. And the testimony of men that fought with him was that this guy was incredibly brave, and he kept their morale up. Mm. Alas, he was killed uh, on on Iwo Jima just six days after he was put in for the Medal of Honor. Mm. And you, you said you have his Purple Heart? I have his name Purple Heart in my museum. I have a museum of World War II artifacts. Tell me more about why you did that. Why a museum? Well... I have a museum uh, because, and I've always brought my students to our home. My wife has always fed them tea and coffee and cookies, and I'd bring them and give them a tour of my museum. It's about 800 square feet, and I've I've done this with my students. I've had high school teachers that have brought their classes. I want the next generation to understand that freedom is not free. It's mm. costly. Yeah that there were 12 and a half million men and women in uniform in World War II who served so that we can be free today. And mm. the Bible, t- and this gives me an opportunity to witness as well, because I said the Bible tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. Right. We have been given freedom. Mm. And what a shame that we sometimes mm. mock it, yeah. burn the flags, have disdain for various things, but we're free because of the sacrifice of people, the men and women who gave the minimum some of the best years of their lives, and many of them gave their lives. Mm. I have a small box of memorabilia from my dad's uh, time in World War II. He was on Okinawa. Mm. And and I keep it um, thinking that someday when my grandson is old enough, I want to sit down with him and open up that box and share what's in it and why it's in it. That's that's the same thing you're talking about, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. And I'm glad you're preserving those things because I, a lot of things in my collection have come from people who say, you know, I don't know what to do with all this junk. <laughs> do you, are you interested in it? Mm. Well, I always am. I always, these are national treasures. I preserve yeah. them. I have dad's discharge paper and I, I look at it and I think what he must have felt the day he was handed that piece of paper after the war, you know. Yes. To yes. finally be free. Mm. But let's get back to the chaplains. These are heroes. Yes, indeed. There, it's uh, in World War II. There were, I just to give you an example of things. There were eight million three, approximately eight million three hundred thousand uh, men and women in the army, and three million three hundred thousand in the navy. And uh, chaplains, there was a hard time getting enough chaplains to serve that many people. The Army had just under 9,000 chaplains in World War II, and the Navy had about 2,700. And uh, the Navy, of course, Navy chaplains rotated every year. They might be one year with the Marines and next year on a ship, the next year at a naval station. In the Army, a chaplain, like I have students right now, former students who are military chaplains, active duty. If they're assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, they stay with them for the duration. Mm-hmm. They never move. It's a totally different philosophy. 
So in your book, do you tell the stories of these chaplains, individuals? I do. I have a lot of, you know, I have overarching themes of things that I see, uh, but I also have a lot of cameo portraits of different chaplains and things that they did. Um, that These guys are incredibly heroic. I, I look, as I've gone through, by the way, the National Archives has something called Record Group uh, 247, and every chaplain in the U.S. military had to, in the U.S. Army, had to turn in a monthly report. Mm. And uh, so there's all this rich data, so wow. I can get a chaplain, find his name, where he went to school, where he was trained in seminary, and so forth, what's his denomination, and then I can see monthly what he was doing with the troops. Wow. And sometimes they'd turn in their monthly report, I'd find one, and there'd just be scrawl across it. We're in the midst of combat. I don't have time to fill this garbage uh, out. Now, <laughs> now, turn it in. in general, uh, are the chaplains uh, not armed? No, they're not armed. They were not allowed to bear arms. Wow. But there's an interesting story. There was a a chaplain, a Navy chaplain, who was with the Marines, and when these bonsai attacks would come, and they'd be preparing for them because the, they knew the Marines would know the Japanese were coming, mm-hmm. this one chaplain would hunker down with the guys. If a guy at one of the guns was killed, he'd take over. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I found a photograph of him standing next to a tank, leaning against it, and you could see the forty-five pistol in the sling <laughs> inside his jacket. And three different times he lost his cool and picked up firearms and, and joined the Marines and shooting at the Japanese. Wow. And uh, they finally, uh, his commander said, you know, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to even handle these firearms. And he did it once. He did it twice. They forgave him the third time. They said, look, we're not going to get you kicked out of the military, but we're sending you to the Hawaiian Islands because we don't think you'll have any bonsai attacks to have to join <laughs> nobody, with. Nobody to shoot there. <laughs> huh. The men loved him, by the way. They thought he was the greatest. Yeah, yeah. So what are the qualities of these men, spiritually speaking? Well, they vary, uh, but the good chaplains were men who loved God and loved these combatants, saw them as their parishioners. They saw them as their their flock that they needed to care for, and they cared about them personally. And uh, they were the ones who often wrote letters to family when somebody was killed or badly wounded. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm guessing that was probably a, a major part of their work, uh, the letter home. It was. It was. And here's an interesting thing. I interviewed, I couldn't find many chaplains because these guys were so much older than the typical combatant. They would have at least seven or eight years of education beyond high school. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't find a lot of chaplains to interview, but I interviewed a lot of veterans from World War II and said, do you have any memories, recollections of chaplains? Not many of them said, oh yes, but some did. And I couldn't find a one that could remember the name of the chaplain, oh. but they would remember how they were blessed by the guy. Wow. Uh, if you got time, I'll give you one little interesting portrait. Absolutely. I'd love to yeah. hear it. Please. Yeah. Well, anyway, there was a man, and I did get to interview him, uh, Sergeant Bob Slaughter. He's now crossed over, and he's in heaven, but he was with the 29th Infantry Division. And the 29th invaded France on D-Day, so he was in a, one of the first waves of invaders fought all the way up, and a, a few days later, they're a little farther into France, and he said they'd come to this one town, and the Germans had these 88-millimeter cannons, and they're blasting them as they're coming up. And he said, we, he said a buddy of mine and I, we rapidly uh, dug a little foxhole and jumped in it. He said the two of us jumped down in this foxhole. He said no sooner had we jumped in than a third uninvited guest <laughs> leaps in on top of us. And he said, I look up, and he, on, his, on his helmet is a white cross, and he's a chaplain. Uh. And he said, the chaplain said, men, sorry to bother you, but I'm looking for a Sergeant Bob Slaughter. And he said, I know this is a big company you're in, and the guys are scattered around, but uh, I'm trying to find him. And Slaughter said, wow. <laughs> this is a long arm of coincidence, <laughs> uh, I'm Bob Slaughter. And he said, well, I'm sorry to bear you bad news. Uh, Your father died in in the town in Virginia where they lived. And your mother went to the pastor of the church and asked him if he could get the word to the army and get you out and bring you home. 
uh, on on leave, and uh, he said, as you can see, you're rather busy around here. We're not going to be able to get you out. But I wanted to bring the word to you that your father died, and your mother's fine. Now that's phenomenal. Oh, unbelievable! Goodness. Slaughter told me he said I knew God was with me, and I thank him for that chaplain who uh, who helped me. Those are the wow. kinds of things that uh, you find stories like that, and you thank God for these people. Yeah. I, I had another interesting story, if you have time yes. for it. These um, are great. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I had a man that I met here in Birmingham, uh, Henry Cobb. And Henry Cobb was a uh, young lieutenant in World War II, and he told me that I asked him if he had any recollections of chaplains. He said, not by name, but he said, I do have one unforgettable story. He said, and Henry was in a church I was going to, which was Anglican Church. It was similar to the Episcopal Church, and he'd been raised in the Episcopal Church. Mm. And he said, because I'm an Episcopalian, he said, Holy Communion was always important to me. And he said, before I'd go up on the front and take my platoon, he said, I'd always try to find a chaplain and get communion. Mm -hmm. And he said, this one morning, and it was in December of 1944, and they were near the Hurtgren Forest where the Battle of the Bulge was raging. He said the chaplain there was a uh, Roman Catholic priest, and he said uh, he said Catholics typically don't give communion to anybody but other Catholics. But he said uh, he they don't card you in the middle of a war. He said <laughs> I went up to him and, and got received the Eucharist. And he said, uh, so I went on in and went in with my platoon. He said, I was wounded. I had a flesh wound on my thigh, and I came off the front and was coming out just to get it taped up so I could get back to my men and not be losing a lot of blood. And he said, I look, and in front of me, kind of bent low, was this chaplain that had given me communion a half hour or so before. And he said he had something in each hand. I don't know what it was. He said it might have been probably a communion kit or something in one hand. He said, I don't know. And he was crouching and running right into the forest. And I said, Chappie, stop. You can't go in there. Men are dying all over that place. And he said, then that's precisely why I need to be there. Oh. And he said he just charged on in. He said, I never knew his name, never saw him again, don't know what happened to him. I'm so glad you're preserving these stories. I will tell you men this, next to the Army Air Corps, the Army Air Corps had the highest per capita casualty rate in the U.S. Army. Hmm. Second to the Army Air Corps was the Chaplain Corps. Wow. Wow. Stunning. Yeah. Well, again, Dr. Lyle Dorsett has been with us. Our time has gone so quickly here. Serving God and Country is the book. Michael's already ordered a copy of the book. I just ordered a a copy for a friend who's a chaplain in Anchorage, Alaska, who I'm going to see next week. So I'm going to send send him your book, and I'm going to send him your greetings, Dr. Dorsett. You do that. Tell him we're grateful for his service. Yes. Thank you, sir. Thanks for preserving these stories for us. Well, I enjoyed I enjoyed talking about it. These guys are still my heroes. I'll be 81 in April, and I was a little boy during World War II, and my uncle was in the war. And I, these guys were all my heroes. Amen. And uh, I started collecting World War II memorabilia when my uncle came home in early 1946. Wow. Well. So, You've you've really. So anyway, uh, Mike, keep collecting that stuff. Hold on to things. <laughs> uh, I will do that, Doctor uh-huh. Dorsett. And thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. God yeah. bless you both. God bless thank you. you. Let's listen to Michael sing appropriately. I will bring you home. Though you are homeless, though you're alone, I will be your home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home. I will be your home. I will be your home. In this fearful and fallen place I will be your home When time reaches full 
When I move my hand, I will bring you home. Home to your own place in a beautiful land. I will bring you home. This Memorial Day, as as we think about the men and women who've given everything, mm-hmm. given up their homes, yeah. given Less up their full families. measure of devotion, yeah, so that we could be free. Um, I, that song kind of has a, a different resonance when you think about the fact that the promise of God is, "I'm going to bring you home." And uh, for those of you know those who who belonged to Jesus, He had a pl- place all prepared for them. But I also want to think too of uh, the men and women who are serving right now. And how they have given up their homes. And if you're listening, uh, please hear that we, we, we are honored by you. And we, uh, we thank you for your service to our country. And we want you to hear, too, that promise that God will eventually bring you home. But thank you for serving our country. Yes, thank you, Michael. Well, no matter how you hear this podcast, we hope you'll take time to explore more of what we have available for you online. Our website has been updated, and we're excited about what's waiting for you when you visit michaelcard.com. You'll want to stay current with Michael's weekly blog posts, see his touring and conference schedule, and get all the details about what you're hearing on the podcast and how to subscribe at michaelcard.com. Also, you can contact us with your reactions and suggestions for future programs. Check out the many ways to go deeper with what you're enjoying at michaelcard.com, michaelcard.com. Well, coming up, we'll continue with Michael's study of the book of Job, and that's just ahead when we return next here in the studio with Michael Card. time we're together, there's a classic in the studio with Michael Card. We'll open the archive to hear Dr. Ravi Zacharias join us to discuss the picture Philippians chapter 2 gives about the person of Christ. Then we'll go on a field trip to the Nashville Rescue Mission, and joining us will be Curry Womack. Powerful stories and the honest telling of God's grace at work. Watch for the post and share the podcast link with a friend. Find the program audio at michaelcard.com. Michael, I'm so glad we've been able to capture this conference on lament that you did, the teaching from Job. Yeah. And we're coming up on part three in just a moment. I've said it before, but it's so helpful to be able to go back in the archive and listen to parts one and two. So anyone who missed those, uh, just go and listen. It's there for you, and you can listen to it as many times as you need to. It's it's not terribly complicated, but sometimes sometimes you have to hear it more than once to let it sink in. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. It really is a good point. Uh, you want to kind of summarize just a little bit of what you've talked about so far in parts one and two? Well, first of all, Job, uh, it's in the wisdom books, but it's not about wisdom. It's about the inadequacy of wisdom. Job's mm. friends and Job, they just can't understand Didn't what God— Didn't do much for him, did they? No, they, they can't understand what God is doing. And God shows up at the end of the book, and he has every opportunity to answer their questions, and he doesn't. He asks questions that are harder than any of their questions— so the book of Job is not a book about answers. It's a, it's a book about the movement of God. From In chapter 1, God is in heaven on his throne. In chapter 42 and 3, where is God? He's with Job. So the, someone has said the miracle of the book of Job is the movement of God. And I think that can happen in our lives. I think God shows up. Yeah. And uh, if we keep demanding answers, uh, I think we need to learn from the book of Job. It's not about being right. It's not about having all the answers. It's about being faithful. Well, that's a really deep thought that yeah. you can spend a lot of time thinking about. And I hope you will uh, spend some time thinking and praying about this thing, especially if 
if you're going through it yourself, yes. I mean, there are a lot of people listening right now who are in pretty deep waters. Ab- absolutely. And, and again, it's about holding on. It's about, um, uh, Walter Brueggemann says, it's, it's about not leaving the dance floor until the music stops. Okay, let me quickly overview it for you. Just talk through the book for you, okay? In one one, the narrator says Job is innocent. Okay, so it's not a book to figure out whether Job is innocent or not. It's stated in the very beginning he's innocent. Um, in one five, Job demonstrates that his uh, his faithfulness by sacrificing for what might have happened. And then in one eight, God says he's blameless. And the Hebrew is interesting. The the word really means he's healthy, he's complete, he's straight. You know, Hebrew words mean five things at one time. Um, in one nine, Satan accuses Job of living only by the equation that good people are blessed and bad people are cursed. And he's also basically accusing, he's accusing God and Satan kind of at the same time. That's sort of what he does. Uh, he doesn't love you. He only loves what you do for him. Right? So when, you know, see what he's saying? I mean, there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of poison behind that accusation. He doesn't really love you. He loves that you do stuff for him. Okay. Um, and so the first attack is in 112, uh, and God hands Job over knowing that he'll remain faithful. You know, stuff doesn't happen. God doesn't say, oh man, I didn't see that coming. Right? It's part of being God. He knows that Job is going to be uh, faithful. And then in 121, in spite of his suffering, Job blesses God. He holds on by means of lament. And that first little fragment there is a song. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's poetic. So he falls down on his knees and he sings this little song. Uh, two, three, God points out that, uh, to Satan that he was right and Job remained faithful in spite of his suffering. So Satan escalates the attack, two, four, and brings physical uh, suffering into it. And in 2.7, the second attack happens, and he strikes Job's body with whatever disease, leprosy or whatever it is uh, that he uh, suffers with. In, uh, in 2.9, his wife, interesting enough, and we've, we've made a cartoon character out of it, she suffered just as much as Job has, y'all. She, you know, she lost everything too. Okay? So she... Um, she tells uh, Job to curse God and die, and basically, that's the equation, right? Curse God and die. Do something disobedient, and he'll whack you. Um, but interesting, the word for, that, that we say curse, that, that word in Hebrew is the word for bless, barek. So it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a one of this, it's, a, it's an antonym. It's an interesting use of that word. So... That literally, it says, bless God and die. It's facetious, right? Obviously, she doesn't mean bless. She means curse. So that all the translators translate it that way. It's an antonym. I mean, what does cleave mean? Cleave means to cut things apart. It also means to stick two things together. It's, it's an antonym. Hesed does it too. Hesed in, in Leviticus, hesed means disgrace. Uh, if, a, if a man looks on the nakedness of his sister, that's hesed. Well, we know that's not loving kindness, right? That's a disgrace. If you don't care for the poor in Leviticus, that's hesed. Well, we know that's a disgrace to not care for the poor. Okay. Context determines meaning. Okay. Words don't have literal meaning. What does key mean? K-E-Y. What's key mean? You don't know until I tell you the context. Okay. Some words, we don't even know how to say them until we know the context. How do you pronounce B-O-W? Well, you don't know until I tell you the context. Is it bow? Is it bow? You don't know. L-E-A-D. How do you pronounce that? Is it lead or is it lead? You don't know. Okay. He still refuses to let go. He will not curse God because, because of what God said in chapter 1. Job, God was right. Job is a good guy. He's a faithful guy. Okay. In, in, in 2.11, Job's three friends arrive. And they sit with him for seven days and weep. Good for them. And his, his first lament starts in 3.1, and uh, his first lament is to curse the day he, he was born. There's a little sidebar here in terms of lament. I don't talk about this as much as I used to, but the, you know, the very, what's the very first sound that you make to show that you're alive? 
you cry, right? And what happens when you cry, when you're first born? They hand you to your mother. And what, well, no, they hand you to your mother. And what, what experience do you have? Intimacy and presence. And Hesed. In sort of your infant intuition, you're being held by someone who, who loves you so much, she'd rather die than live without you, Right? That's our first, and that's our first experience, is weeping and hearing other people's weep, people weep, and being and being held by someone who really loves us. Uh, that's most people. That's not every. Obviously, this sometimes there are different circumstances. But so when Job goes back to this cursing the day he was born, he's sort of saying none of that was true. You know, th- there is no hesit in the world. I've been good, and look what's happened to me. Right. And you can resonate with him, right? And don't, don't just write that off. This is, this is real. This is uh, our experience. So that first infant experience of presence and hesed, he's saying, I, just, I, w- I should have died. Okay, uh, Eliphaz pipes up. Chapter 4 says, what innocent man ever suffered? And it really is a reproof. Uh, and then in 6, Job's second lament Starts, you've seen your notes, and the themes are, let God crush me, tell me where I'm, on, I'm wrong, I'm still in the right. I dare you to tell me what I did to deserve all this. Okay? And once again, another sidebar, there is innocent lament and there's lamenting because of our sin. Not all lament is innocent lament. And the first time I wrote the, the, the uh, Sacred Sorrow book, it was all about innocent suffering lament. And I sent the book to D.A. Carson, who's smarter than all of us put together, and he writes back and he says, I can't, I can't endorse this book because you didn't talk about lamenting for our sin. And I said, oops, you know, you're right. So I rewrote the whole book. Um, so we're still looking at innocent. When we look at David, we'll have plenty of lamenting for sin. He's kind of, that's his, that's his specialty. Yeah, that's his specialty. Okay, so anyway, that's his second lament. In uh, 7-Eleven, he, he refuses to let go. And that refusal takes the form of lament. I'm not going to leave the dance floor till the music stops. Right? Because God is committed to staying on the dance floor with me until the music stops. That's what lament is. Maintaining this difficult uh, conversation. I, I get all the quotes there. And seven, during that lament, Job refers to the, the, the unique name for God in lament, which is direct address, you. He calls God you. He's speaking directly to him. He's not talking about him, not talking about him. He's talking to him. Why do you make me your target? Okay, eight is one is where Bildad uh, pipes up, and you see the quote there. If you're blameless and upright, he'll protect you, which is an implication that you're not blameless or upright. And in 814, or I'm sorry, in 84, that's where it's Bildad that says your children got what they deserved. Yeah. Your children got what they deserved. And Job responds to him in chapter 9. Note, he stopped lamenting. He's talking about God as a subject. There's no more you. God is a subject. They're theologizing. He. God changes from being a you to a he. He destroys the blameless. And then Job speaks against the equation. Third lament, chapter 10. I know I'm not guilty. Uh, yeah, 10.1 through 22 is Job's third lament. And then 11.1, Zophar pipes up. God has lo- overlooked some of your iniquity. What does that imply? But there's a whole bunch of your iniquity he's not looking over, and that's why you're suffering, so uh, you're bad. You're bad. He's, they all, all of his friends speak on the basis of the equation. That's all they know. That's all they know. And you see where God is, how God is using this book to take us beyond this? In the book of Job, God is saying, how, how could you think that this is all I am? Job, how can you think this is all I am? Not, I'm not the M&M man. I want to be your friend. I want to walk with you. See, I want to be... And that's, I mean, and that's intimacy. That's where we're going. That's Psalm 150, 40, and that's Revelation 21. I'll walk with them and be their God, and they'll be my people, and I'll, wa- I'll wipe away every tear. That's where it's going. Wedding party. We're all, we're just party planners. We're all going to a big party where we'll celebrate this. 
Okay, in 12.1, Job responds to Zophar, and note again, he stopped lamenting. He, God is merely the subject, okay? And in that middle of that lament in 13.3, Job refuses. I insist on arguing with God. And we hear that and we go, ooh, I don't think I'd be saying that. <clears throat> no. We've, God and I have a problem, and we're going to work this thing out. That's Job. Now, he's going to apologize later for saying that. But my point is, he needed to say this. You are free to say to God whatever you need to say. Right? You are free. And if you don't have the language, God will give you the language. Here's Psalm 73. Here's Psalm 22. Here's Psalm 69. Here's Psalm 109. Here's Job. So, I insist on arguing with God. And, and then the great, the wonderful thing, we, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And, and my Bible translates that first thing as though, but it's, it's really, it's the word hine in, in Hebrew, which means look. Look. Even if he, even if he slays me, I'm going to trust him. So Job has just substantiated what God said about him in chapter, in chapter 1. Job is righteous. He's a good guy. He did not deserve what he got. Okay, so in 13, uh, 17, this fourth lament starts, which is really a, a, a lament of presence. And then Eliphaz pipes up in 15.1 and says, you shouldn't talk to God this way. Your sinfulness dic dictates your speech. It's because you're such a sinful person that you talk to God. You know, and, and you and I have been hammered by people like this our whole lives. God, he can't possibly be anything but this. So you better clean up and fly straight. Right? That's the implication that we, we, we've, we've received in the book of Job. says, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Hesed. And then uh, verse 13, uh, that you could vent your anger on such, and let such words come out of your mouth. In the South, we say, you kiss your mother with that mouth? That's kind of what he says to him. Job, you kiss your mother with that mouth? Okay. Cuss words. Well, yeah, I think we are, but it's just you're not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not allowing you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I'm not saying we should all be angry with God and shake our fists, but when we're suffering, and that, you know, there is a time when that's appropriate. Um, but there's also a time where in the end of that prayer we say, I'm so sorry I said that. I'm so sorry. I think apologizing at the end of a lament is probably a good thing. Okay, let's, let's keep going on down. Job sees his friends as a mention of his suffering. Bildad pipes up again in 18.1. Um, and Job responds in 19, 1 through 29. Again, note that there is no lament. He stops lamenting. He stops talking to God and starts talking about God. And now he says, I know that God has wronged me. He uproots my hope like a tree. What a horrible thing to say to God. Uh, but then that suffering leads him to that wonderful vision of Jesus when he says, I know my Redeemer lives. So far, there, uh, again, in 21 through 29, Job responds to him in 21. Uh, through 34. Okay, this is all really RJ. Retributive justice. That's what it is. RJ is retributive justice. His friends are all spokespersons for retributive justice. Okay, so on and on it goes. You, you see the structures. Uh, look at 23 1 through 24 25. Job is responding to Eliphaz. Um, and this is where he really feels like he's lost God. Uh, in verse 8, he says, he's not there. He's hidden. I'm innocent. I'm terrified. I dread him. Uh, 16b, Shaddai has terrified me. God, God is just this person I'm terrified of. He's not, a good, he's not a God of Hesed. He's a God who basically whacks me, even when I'm innocent. And you, you do know, this is what all the, all the other pagan gods were like. Baal and Molech and all those guys. And really, Allah is this way. Uh, you talk to a Muslim person, they're, they're not sure they're going to heaven. Uh, Allah is very sort of uh, uh, arbitrary. You're not really sure if he's going to whack you or not. But that our God, you know, one of the themes of the Old Testament is there's no God like him. And what's, what makes him different is his hesed. He's kind. Right? He's kind. And, you know, when they dedicate the temple, the, the theme is, Solomon's theme is, there's no God like you. There's no God like you.
29.1 is Job's fifth lament. Um, and notice, okay, that's 29.1. My note says, he doesn't start talking to God again until 30.20. In 32.1, hallelujah, his friends finally give up trying to persuade him. Okay, this, this guy's not going to budge. Uh, and then he appears, Elihu, fresh from, symph- uh, from uh, uh, sen- uh, seminary, thank you. Uh, and he's mad at Job and their friends. Uh, he, it seems at first he's kind of taking a mediating position because he says that God does use suffering as discipline, yay Elihu, or reproof, or even redemption, yay Elihu. But in 34.11 he says he pays a man according to his actions. He's back to this. So that's Elihu. We hope for so much from Elihu and we, we get nothing. And then God. And God begins the, his discourse in 31.8 and it's questions. Okay, Job has asked all these questions, and when God shows up, it's the perfect opportunity for him to explain himself. He doesn't answer a single question. He asks, just asks more questions, and his are way harder than any of Job's questions. Like, where were you when I created the universe? Huh? Huh? Right? Where were you? And in 40, verse 4, Job says, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. Good move, right? Good move. And 46 uh, through 41, 26 is basically the theme is, anybody that confronts me, I'm going to show up and we're going to deal with this, okay? 42, 1 through 6, Job responds. He says, I said things I shouldn't have said. Okay, to say that you don't care, to say that you've hidden your face from me, I shouldn't have said that. But my point is, those things needed to be said. All right, Bonhoeffer says, God, ta- or, God takes the complaints of men and he makes Holy Scripture out of them. So, uh, and then the big turn happens, but now I see you. Um, but now I see you. And here's the aftermath. Joe, God char- charges the three friends, Andrew, I'm with you, that kind of bugs me about where, what happened to Elihu. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job did. So basically, when they say this is all there is, God is saying, that's not true. There's more to me than this. Okay, that's the big conclusion. Uh, and it's really weird. They are ordered to make a sacrifice and ask Job to pray to God for them. Job becomes a mediator for these three guys, which is really bizarre. Uh, verse 2, when Job prayed for his friends, God restored Job's fortunes twofold. Now, for all of you prosperity people who say, ah, look, he's still, you know, he got twice as much back, so God, you know, God blessed him. No, he never got his children back. Never, never got the ones who died back. Getting your stuff back doesn't erase all that suffering. He has other children, but uh, I've, I've heard prosperity people say, no, it's clear. You know, God blessed him at the end. No, that's not how it works. I think he would have rather not gone through what he went through and just kept his original pile of stuff. Okay? Three, uh, Job's other friends come to uh, a meal to honor him, and they give him gold. His sheep and his cattle are all restored. He has seven more sons and three beautiful daughters. The detail there is that they're really pretty. And Job lives 140 years, seeing four generations of his family, and dies old and content. But do you feel like, I mean, at least from this point of view and in terms of our categories, that, that's kind of the book of Job. So Job is, is a, he's a sort of a, um, he's an icon of lament. It's a novel of lament, Job is. And all of these elements that we see are all there. He, he does this. He goes through the wilderness. He begins with Torah obedience. He goes through the wilderness. And in the end, he celebrates the presence of God. His sonship basically is established in the wilderness, just like our daughterhood and our sonship is. And he learns to worship in the wilderness. He learns what God is worth in the wilderness. So all those categories sort of come together. Who is it that darkens my counsel? Who speaks empty words without knowledge Brace yourself up like a man And answer me now if you can Can you put on glory and splendor? What's the way to the home of the light? Does your voice sound like the thunder? 
were you afraid? Where were you when earth's foundations were laid? Who gave the heart its wisdom? The mind its desire to know? Can you bind the stars? Raise your voice to the clouds? Did you make the eagle proud? Spend the night by your manger Did you let the wild donkey go free? Can you take Leviathan home as a pet? If you merely touched him, you'd never forget So who is it that darkens my counsel? Who speaks empty words without knowledge? Brace yourself up like a man And answer me now if you can I am unworthy, how can I reply? There's nothing that you cannot do. You are the storm that calmed my soul. I place my hand over my mouth. I place my hand over That's the last section of the Job Suite, performed by Michael Card, a fitting song to wrap up our study in the book of Job. And we hope you'll join us next week as we open the archives and present a classic broadcast recorded at the Mole Inn Studio. If you need to listen to this program again or have missed a recent program, just look for past sessions online. Our website has been fully updated so it's easy to find more details about the program and Michael's ministry. Come explore all that's waiting for you at michaelcard.com. You can access Michael's weekly blog posts, learn more about his conference ministry, and get the links for subscribing to this podcast in iTunes or Google Play at michaelcard.com. Now for all of us on the team, Ron Davis, Lauren Kosky, Ashley Smith, Lance Mansfield, Jeff Jones, and our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. <laughs>